Welcome to the Profitable Python with your host, Ben McNeil. On this episode, you will meet Mike Driscoll. Mike solves problems as an automated test engineer. He's a family man that enjoys blogging and writing about the Python programming language. Mike has his own popular blog called Mouse vs. Python, and he also contributes to Real Python. In addition, Mike has written seven books about Python. Mike, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I am super excited. When I was prepping, prepping out for this, uh, there's just so much I want to ask you. So I'll jump in, jump into this. But before we even get going, I, I got to know, will the mouse ever slay the python? <laughs> Probably not. They're, they're more like friends than anything else. <laughs> okay, so, they're, so really they're playing. They're not battling uh, on those images. Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> what, what is the genesis of that, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, I was I was trying to come up with a really good name for the blog, and I was talking to my brother about it, and he was like, well, you use a computer mouse, and you're computer programming in Python, and it, I was kind of like, that's kind of a fun idea, so we I went with it. Yeah, that that is legit, and uh, I, I was also curious, so your book art is freaking fantastic. The the new one, the WX Python, where do you, where do you come up with that stuff, or, or does somebody, does someone design that for you? Um, I, I usually hash out ideas in my head and then I uh, form it out to someone who can actually draw. Okay. So that, that last one, I, w I had a general idea of what I wanted and I actually had like two or three different cover ideas and the first cover idea didn't pan out. And so my wife and I re refined the second idea that ended up being the cover for the, the WX Python book. Yeah, that, th that is uh, epic. I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. I liked how it turned out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, good job uh, for your artist, whoever that is. Um, so I, I would like, well, I was wondering, how would you explain automated testing to my 95-year-old grandma? So automated testing is, uh, well, let's say you're, you're, you're not going to do it automated. You're going to do it by hand. So you would be poking buttons on your, on your monitor or your screen. And so if I was explaining to my grandma, I would show her, you know, this is where you touch uh, kind of like on your on your phone, like if you had an iPhone. If I want to dial your number, you you touch the keypad. Well, if I want to automate that so that I can dial a thousand numbers, I can program it to push those buttons for me a thousand times really, really fast. Uh, okay. That's that's the gist of it. Perfect. And it makes your software stronger, I guess, is is the ultimate goal of that. Uh, the goal in this case is to free up the testing the, the testing department's time to do more exploratory testing. Okay. As well as, as, you know, regression. The, the automated tests are kind of a regression test as well. Okay, perfect. So for new Python programmers, should object-oriented programming be looked up exclusively or can they pick it up as they go along? I think you can pick it up as you go along. I, I started out doing a lot of login scripts, which is more functional programming. Mm -hmm. And... I didn't really start using classes until I started creating uh, the user interfaces with WX Python or TK Enter. So, you know, you, you can do, you, you can, I think you can start either, either, at either end, do the functional or do the object oriented or do a mix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a hefty dose of OOP in that WX Python book, uh, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed that book. That was especially the database chapter, or there was two of them. Mm -hmm. Yep. So. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, it, it almost reminds me of like, uh, like you could make like a super awesome Microsoft Access, like without that two gigabyte limitation. Yes, you could. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that limitation. But uh, 
Um, how, how do you think Pythonistas will need to adapt to monetize their skills in the future? Um, a lot of Pythonistas would need to probably look at um, how do you speed up your Python or do you have to switch to a different language? Um, I've heard lots of good things about switching to using PyPy instead of CPython that can give you an easy five to 10 times boost of your program speed hmm. if, you can, if you don't depend on any libraries that aren't compatible with PyPy. Um, there's, there's several other packages like PyPy that you could t technically use as well that might speed it up. Um, like Pandas, you could use Pandas or, and NumPy to speed up your code or you could uh, use Cython for that matter. But if you, you just can't get the speed that you want, you will basically be stuck learning something else, which is fine. You do need to use the right tool for the job. But if you can stick to Python, and a lot of cases you can, I don't see why you wouldn't, why you wouldn't just do it, you know? Mm -hmm. Sure. Do you think that'd be like the topic of, a, of another book or blog post that you would write? Or have you already yeah. covered that sort of thing? <laughs> I'd like to cover more about PyPy and Cython especially. But those will probably be blog posts, not a, not a full-fledged book at this time. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was, I was kind of curious about, uh, I had some questions about Python libraries specifically with computer vision, is that going to be used for good or evil in the future? It's probably going to be used for both, frankly. <laughs> I mean, you've already, got, you've already got lots of computer vision that's being used to um, identify criminals uh, at like the TSA and airports. And we don't really know how many false positives that's, it's creating because right now OpenCV is optimized for uh, white, you know, Anglo people. And it, does, it doesn't do very good with other skin colors right now. So, you know, it's, gonna, it's either going to get false positives or it's not going to ever detect any, anyone, right, uh, you know, in the next couple of years probably. Hmm. Yeah, the bias, uh, I, I didn't even think about that. There's just a whole bias side in ethics. I guess. Yeah, I don't know if it's bias or if it's like they don't have the right data sets. I don't know why that's happening that way right now. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's pretty wild. What... What applications excite you about the future of machine learning and CV or computer vision for those folks that don't know? Uh, for me, I'm, I'm really interested in how it can be used in the medical field. Okay. Especially, um, like uh, I've read that you can use uh, machine learning to diagnose uh, Alzheimer's more, more accurately and quickly than you can with human doctors in some cases. Wow. Um, you can find, I've, I've seen some STEM articles on using computer vision to find cancer in mammograms, and I think that looks really cool. Hmm. Um, but my field is agriculture right now. That's what my industry is. Okay. And there's a lot of interest in using uh, computer vision to identify plants, uh, like crop types versus weeds, and that okay. kind of thing. And then you'll know, am I growing weeds in the field when I shouldn't be? And you can do that from the cab as you're driving along on your field. And that that's like really big right now in the egg in the egg country. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Is there is there more um, like drone work that that you see going on with that, or do you have any kind of like information to color in about kind of the future of agriculture? Um, a couple of years ago, drones were really big at the farm con the farm cons, but mm -hmm. they've kind of dropped off because uh, the the acreage that a typical farm has is just too much to fly a drone over reliably. I think that's the reason. Okay. Um, there are some drone, some neat drone technology for uh, fertilizing or um, 
spraying pesticides. Mm -hmm. But again, it has to go out and spray a small acreage amount and then come back and refill and then fly out. And you have the battery issues because they can only last for so many minutes. And if the field's very big, that doesn't work very well. Mm. Um, I have seen some neat videos from a couple of different companies like Case where they're creating autonomous uh, vehicles that can go plant or do do some kind of uh, function on the field. I don't know if it's planting only or if it's planting and spraying or or what, but I've seen some videos of those on YouTube and those look really cool too. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds exciting. Uh, so, so can you talk about the mileage that you're getting with WX Python and Report Lab, uh, specifically since there's so much hype that surrounds mobile and web development? Uh, well, in my, my field, we use WX Python um, for internal applications. Uh, okay. You know, it's mostly tooling stuff like that. We use it for database uh, access, database front ends for our users internally and for developers primarily. Um, Report Lab, on the other hand, is for creating, creating PDFs. And I use that at a different job because we would, we would, you know, we would uh, take in all kinds of different data formats and transform it into a PDF that could be emailed or printed and mailed or, you know, but just stored indefinitely. And mm -hmm. that, that one I can see being used online as well because for a while there, uh, even Wikipedia was using Report Lab to generate the PDF version of their website. So when you hit put the PDF on the button on Wikipedia, it would actually use Report Lab under the covers to create the page. So I think Report Lab has a ton of easy uses you could use it for on the web and even mobile probably. Mm -hmm. I haven't tried it myself that way, but it, it has it's easy to use and easy to plug in. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I know you have a Report Lab uh, deep dive book, basically. I haven't I haven't had a chance to dig into that uh, too much, but uh, people are enjoying that. That's like a uh, authoritative source on Report Lab, right? Yeah, I believe it's the only book of its kind outside of the, the free manual that the Report Lab developers have released on their own website. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how, do, how did that work exactly? I mean, if there's no resources to really, besides the docs, I guess, like how did you, that seems like a tough nut to crack. <laughs> um, well, I, I referred to the manual quite a bit and uh, basically took the, the outline of it and fleshed it out a lot because there's there lots of missing pieces there that just were, were, wasn't easy to find. So I'd, you know, I'd, I'd research on Stack Overflow and the Report Lab mailing list and my own code from the last 10 years and just kind of piecemealed my own knowledge together with the knowledge of the, the universe to create this book and it, it turned out really well. I thought it, I thought that was like one of the easiest books to write, frankly. Really? Okay. It just yeah. like flowed. It was weird, but huh. it was cool. Yeah. I remember, uh, I saw it on, there was some sort of like a promotion, I think where you could get like a package of books. Was that the Kickstarter one or no? Uh, I usually do a package deal on the, on Kickstarter to help drive sales, okay. but I've done a couple of sales since then just, just on my blog. Right. Yeah, I, I remember it was like, it had just expired on Kickstarter and I, I saw like an old tweet and I was like, dang it. And then uh, <laughs> I, think I, I think I picked it up uh, when I got the, there was like a, like a whole package that you got for like mm. 50 bucks or something like that. And yeah, anyway, I was, I had to, I had to be patient to get my hands on that book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I try to do a couple of sales a year, especially for um, in the fall for, uh, new, for new people who are going into college, that kind of thing. Mm. Oh yeah, I I was reading that in the pre-interview. So you uh you're you're really kind of philanthropic with your 
with your books as well when it when it goes to like students or teachers and like third world uh kind of nations is that uh, do you have do you have any more information to share on that like how people are leveraging those or like how many books that you've given away do you have any information on that well i haven't i don't have concrete numbers but uh, a few years ago i think it was not too long after i released the first jbx cookbook that i created I decided to try releasing Python 101 for free on Reddit and my website for like three days, I think it was. And um, not too long, that, that, that itself generated, I think, around 40,000 downloads. <laughs> and, you know, they, people were reading the book and they're like, hey, I like this book. And so they buy my other books that were available at that time. Yeah. And like a month later, I decided, oh, well, that worked so well and got me enough sales. I'm going to try that with Python 201. And it didn't do as well, which I was kind of expected because it's intermediate level versus beginner level. Right. But it still generated like 20,000 downloads, that's which I, in, in my mind is really awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's freaking wild. Um, but I have done, I think around that time too, I was experimenting with how do I reach educators? And I said on my blog, if you're an educator and you can email me from an educated, you know, like a obviously edu address or k12 or whatever i'll send you a free book and i got i think i got an entire class and like i ran or something emailed me and like we all want a copy of your book and i got <laughs> you know so it, you know it kind of goes in waves you get 10 here and 40 there and mm -hmm. i need to do that again because i haven't done that in a while but yeah that's that sounds awesome uh i mean there's there's a lot of information out there but i mean those those books at least for the ones that i've chewed on i mean they're you you kind of get to borrow like a piece of your brain for, you know, a few hundred pages and you, and you've been doing this since like 2006. I think I was seeing on another podcast show. Is that correct? Um, I've been writing about, I started doing Python in 2006. I think my first blog post was like 2007 or eight, okay. something, somewhere in there. And yeah. yeah. What, what has that been like kind of seeing the language just, I mean, it's probably transformed. Is it even recognizable uh, to when you first got going with it or? Yeah, I, I started on 2.4, and it's like right after I started using 2.4, 2.5 was released, and um, for the most part, it stayed the same. The Python 3 has added a lot of new things, especially like in the last three versions, I think 3.5, 3.6, and 3.7. Mm -hmm. they've, they, they've added F strings, and uh, 3.8 has the Walrus operator, and they have type hints now. And if you do all three of those, you can make the code look a lot weirder than it used to look. <laughs> And in my opinion, it looks a little bit more cluttered and harder, harder to follow than using the, what I guess I would call the old school formatting. But other people, you know, they look at the type hints and they're like, this makes so much more sense because now I know what types they are. But, you know, I don't know. I, I think I'm a little old school because I still, I'm still like Python is a dynamic typed, even if it's strongly typed language. And I like that about it. But type hinting might be the future for it after all. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Do you think, do you think, um, cause you've kind of seen this whole progression, is there much to really build out or are kind of the big wins already accomplished with the language or do you think it's kind of seen its day and something else will form out of it? Oh, I think Python still has some legs to go, go okay. places. Um, the biggest thing that it's weak in right now, in my opinion, is mobile. Mm. Um, you can't create my, uh, native apps with Python on mobile right now. Um, there's two libraries, Kiwi and Toga, that do try to get around that. But uh, Kiwi is, draws all their widgets themselves, so they don't look native at all. Okay. But it's it's a lot. It has a lot more functionality built into it. Toga 
is newer from, and it's from Beware and they they have the really basic widgets so you can make really basic looking apps and they look they look right on Android and Apple iOS but they you know they're really limited because they're there's like a handful of buttons and you know dials and whatnot mm -hmm. does it make sense to for the community to put energy into that or should they just stick with like the data science dominated uh, landscape uh, mm. web end back or back ends for the web personally i'd like them to spend time on mobile because okay. i like i'd like to get into mobile with python then mm -hmm. you don't have to learn you know two or three other languages because if you want to do ios you basically are stuck with swift and um what is it uh some some c language i can't think of the name of and i could, and, I couldn't tell you <laughs> android is like davlik and java related stuff right now so right if I, if I could just choose one language and program on all of them, I, I'd like that. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, I could agree with you on that one. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, walk me through the progression of your personal brand from becoming almost entirely word of mouth. Like you started out somewhere and now it's like, yeah, entirely word of mouth. How, how did that work? Well, when I started out, uh, my blog was just me writing down articles because I was like, I don't want to forget what I'm learning right now. So I didn't know Python at first. And so I'm like, I'm just going to put everything I'm learning onto my blog. Okay. And more, and you know, it wasn't just, it was mainly for my benefit. And then people started reading it and saying, Hey, I really like this. Could you write about this too? And I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting. And so <laughs> I would write about, you know, basically requested topics and okay. I, that kind of grew, grew my brand. And then mm -hmm. I, then Stack Overflow uh, started getting popular and I became, uh, an expert of sorts on there. I'm, I'm nowhere near the expert of some of the guys on Stack Overflow, but I, I'm still ranked pretty highly on there as mm -hmm. a, a Python guy. And that points back to my blog. And basically, as I went along, um, you know, my, my name crops up on Stack Overflow and uh, the Python, Compling Python and several other Python forums. And then I realized when I was writing my blog, I can also get it aggregated on Planet Python. So that gives me a whole different audience. And, you know, just, just doing that helped to get my, my brand out there. Mm -hmm. And recently, um, I joined RealPython as a contributor because I wanted to get editor, editorial feedback on, on my writing. And I also wanted to see what are they doing that I'm not doing because they have 10 times the audience that I have. Hmm. So I went and I've, I've learned a lot from them. They've, they've shown me a lot of good writing tricks and... I kind of understand SEO better, mm -hmm. and um, while I've upped my Twitter presence, it hasn't really done a lot for sales, but it, I think it is generating slightly more traffic to the blog, so I'm going to continue to experiment with that and see if that can make it better, or if it just stays the same, I'll have to try something new. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned there, like Reddit and Hacker News were kind of some other places that helped with the viral loop. Is um, yes, I, I use Google Analytics on my blog to help identify which uh, sources are coming to my blog the most often. And Reddit and Hacker News used to be pretty high on the list. Anymore, mm -hmm. it's mostly organic search from Google. But okay. um, when, they, when they were in the top five, that's when I knew that they were helping me a lot. You know, like five years ago, that they were probably helping a lot. Nowadays, okay. it's, it's not as helpful. And it's mainly search engines that are coming, coming to my blog or occasionally um, someone popular will link to my blog from another article and I'll get a lot of hits. Mm -hmm. is, 
what do you what do you think that's from uh where you've seen the traffic die down from those uh like hacker news for example or reddit like is the has the community changed or is the maybe the search engine is just that not seeing that as relevant or some, or what do you think about that i don't know what's going on with hacker news but uh, reddit itself the mods there have changed a lot so that they are really grumpy about you posting too much on their on their things, so like Learn Python won't let, won't even let me post on there half the oh, time, okay. and because they like you're promoting uh, paid content, so you're not allowed. Versus, uh, I think it's R Python, where I can post, but if I post too much, they'll ban me. And so I've got so I don't really post there. I let other people post there, and then I comment on on my own article and be like, hey, you got any questions? You can you know ask me right now. So I think that's why those aren't as good a venue as they used to be, is that the mods are either cracking down or they've got different mods that have their own agendas. I don't know what the okay. deal is there. Yeah, the the reason that I prize so much is I'm I'm actually just getting into this blog space, and I've also heard that it's a great way to market yourself as a software developer. Uh, it's definitely like a long game from what mm -hmm. I understand. But I, yeah, I'm just like infinitely curious about like your learnings from this space. And then of course the audience would uh, hopefully, you know, receive these knowledge bombs as well. Yeah. Well, I, I do know that at least learn Python, they, the mods have reached out to me and said that I can post there to some degree. I just have to be careful with how I word things so that I don't get auto ban, you know, auto, what is it called? Auto deleted by the auto mod. Oh, okay. Cause you know, if I say, uh, here, here's my new book. It's for sale for, you know, 50% off. Those will get binned immediately. Whereas if I comment on someone else's article and say, hey, my book is for sale right now, though my comments won't get binned, they can, they will stay. So, you know, I just have to be careful where, how I post to their site, I guess. It, okay, it's, crazy. It's weird. Yeah. And there's probably no like Reddit instruction manual or <laughs> like you wouldn't, you wouldn't know and, and unless you were like in the trenches, right? Yeah, I mean, Reddit itself says, go ahead and post your own content. That's in the okay. guide. And I'm like, that's why I thought it was okay. And now you find out that subreddits have their own special rules and you better not violate them because they're unwritten. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's wild. I mean, it, 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 it sounds like there's a huge incentive to kind of do what you're doing, even though it is kind of a longer game, have your own blog and just kind of try all these different ways to drive traffic to it, um, like, like what we've discussed here. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I've got my blog set up to auto-post to Twitter, and I think that helps a little bit. Okay. I had it auto-posting to Google+, Plus when that was a thing. Google+, Plus yeah. didn't really drive much of anything, so it was kind of a waste of time, but it was automatic, so I didn't care. Right. Um, I have a post to LinkedIn and Facebook as well. I think the Facebook integration broke, and I wonder you don't get that much traffic from Facebook anyway, which is weird because they have, what, several billion users? Yeah. Um, but they must not really read about Python that much on there. Either that or they want you to pay to play. Yeah, or that, or uh, maybe um, their traffic is masked in some way, so I can't tell it's coming from them. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, what do you, what do you think about LinkedIn since we're on the subject? Is that like a, like a good platform for, I mean, I know it's like a place where I wouldn't want to like, you know, say things that my boss might get mad at or something. Like they have that kind of level of standard, but uh, as far as like building a brand and that sort of thing, like, I mean, what are these, what are like the best outlets in your opinion? Uh, I still like uh, using um, Hacker News and, and LinkedIn. So I think they, they do have an audience that way. Okay. And uh, Twitter too. Those are my, those are probably the big three for me. Um, 
I have played around, um, what's the other one called? I have played around with someone with, um, shoot. I think, I think Planet Python would probably be the other big one for me. You have to find aggregators that will promote your contact kind of, kind of passively, but freely. Unless you okay. have the, have the money to burn, of course. But I, from my research, I think I've read that you don't want to spend more than like five percent of your gross on advertising, online advertising, because you won't make your money back. Something okay. like that. And so I, and what little I've tried of online advertising, it usually doesn't give give me a whole lot. So I haven't done it that too often. Yeah, that's a that's a whole another can of worms, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, what are the benefits and draw drawbacks I guess you've found to self publishing? Cause that's, I mean, that's the only way that you go, right? Um, that's the way I've chosen to go now. I have okay. tried publishing. Uh, I have a book out with packed publishing and right. another book with a press. Um, I like self publishing for several reasons. And I actually wrote a blog post on this subject earlier this year. Okay. So if people want to go check that out. There's a lot more details than I can probably get into here in this venue. Mm -hmm. But regardless, so the reasons I like to self-publish is I get to determine when the deadlines are, when it's released, who gets free copies. If the book is free at the end, which is Python 101 is free, you can read it online, you can download a PDF, or you can give me some money. I don't care. It's free, free for everyone right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the original version of it will continue to be that way. And I, you know, I, I just like having that power to say, this book is free for you. And if, you know, if you have a good reason for wanting a free book, I'll give you a free book. And I also like the ability to say, oh, I found a bug. I can push, uh, push a button and have this, have a, the bug fixed in, you know, 20 minutes and mm. pushed out to all my, all my readers and they can read the updated version of the book. You can't do that with a press or packed or O'Reilly or whatever. As much as I'd like to be able to do that, you know, you have to jump through all these hoops and release a second edition. And, you know, that could be a year or two later after you've got all the, all the edits in. Okay, so, wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fantastic to share. I, I hadn't considered any of that and I'll probably go check out that blog. Um, how do you, how do you choose your book topics? Cause you have very unique selection. Um, so when I originally wanted to start writing a book, people, 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 as in my readers, were telling me you should write about database Python because you have all these articles about it, and okay. there aren't any current books on it. And I was like, yeah, I should. That'd be fun, but I don't want to write an intro to Python uh, set of chapters for my database Python book because that's what everyone else does, and I think it sucks to read thirty, thirty, you know, thirty percent to fifty percent of your book is intro to Python, and then the rest of it is the actual topic of the book. And that, you know, that's how, book, that's how a lot of Python books were back five years ago or so. So I said, I'm going to write a beginner's book, and then in, I'll make Elio bundle it up with the Debrix Python book, or I'll make it free. And so that's what I ended up doing. So when people say, hey, I need to know Python before I can read your book, I can say, well, go get the other one. It's free. Go get it. Read it. Then you come back and read my other book. Um, anyway, I've done Debrix Python now for over 10 years, I think almost 13. Mm -hmm. And I just have a deep understanding and love for that particular GUI toolkit. Yeah. So I just like, I just like to write about it. Um, Report Lab is kind of the same way. I, I had to learn that on my first job with, with Python. Mm -hmm. So I've struggled with Report Lab for a long time. And really, I, it's been a lot better to work with than WX Python. But there's just not very much documentation. And I was like, 
there still isn't that much documentation. It, this might be a niche that makes sense. So I decided to write a book on that topic and be the only one for now. And I guess I still am because every time I look on Amazon, no one else has written anything about it. Yeah. Um, I have ideas for other books that I'd like to write on, mm -hmm. you know, so. What do you, do you have anything cooking right now or that you're at liberty to uh, share, I guess? Um, I am working on, I don't know, I don't have a release dates or even order figured out yet, but I am working on uh, a big update to Python 101, basically practically a rewrite because I've noticed that there's a bunch of new things that have come out since 3.5. Like I mentioned, type hints. Mm -hmm. um, F-strings, I think, came out, came out fairly recently and they're not covered in there. Mm -hmm. um, the way you package up executables is way different nowadays. You know, and if you want to package for PyPy, uh, PyPI, I mean, the package, Python packaging index, mm -hmm. what I have in Python 101 is no longer correct. Okay. You're not supposed to use Python uh, setup.py anymore. You're supposed to use like Twit or some other utility that I'm not, I'm not actually familiar with right now. Hmm. And so there's, a, there's like whole chapters that I'm going to have to ax or rewrite. And, I don't like having a book out there with a bunch of stale information, so I'm going to rewrite that book. Probably either this early, late this year or early next year. And then I've got one on, on mobile that I've been sitting on for a while, waiting for Toga or Kiwi to mature. And, you know, either, they either mature or I'm just going to write the book. I'm not sure which. But <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, do, you, do you ever uh, consider, like, like finding a partner in crime or, or will it always be a Mike Driscoll show with your books? You think? I haven't really thought about getting a co-author. I wouldn't be opposed to doing that, but I don't know if, you know, I don't know how well our, our styles would mesh and I definitely don't want to work with a, a publisher again, unless they were like really good terms. Right. Yeah. What, I mean, what would you look for in like a, like a, like a co software writer, like not a publisher, but somebody that was just as passionate about Python as you, like, what would you, what would you look for in that person? You think? Now I go and try to find if they find their uh, online presence and see if they, what their writing is like to see if it would match up well with mine. Mm -hmm. um, I'd have to kind of feel them out and talk to them about, you know, what, what is your vision? for this, for, you know, topic X, how would we split it up? Um, you know, while our personalities mesh, can we actually commit to things and get them done at the commitment date? That's probably one of the big ones. So um, uh, like Mike Kennedy, he does talk the Talk Python podcast. Mm -hmm. I, would, I would probably be open to, to doing one with him because I know he gets stuff out on a deadline on a regular basis and he's a trainer. So, you yeah. know, working with him would be cool. Sure. Um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of packed authors that are good and there's a bunch of packed authors that aren't so good. True and it's that. really hard to know, you know, which one, which one do you go with? You have to do a lot of research to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Man, I, I did a podcast with Mike Kennedy a few shows ago and I just thoroughly enjoyed that. There's, and I believe you were on a show like episode 150 and something and uh, 150. I was doing my research and I know it was in the one fifties, but, uh, mm -hmm. there's, I mean, just, uh, you, you folks are like amazing humans. Like I, that's why I love doing podcasting. I don't know how else I'd get on your calendar. For example, Mike, like, you know what I'm saying? That this is what I, <laughs> this is what I love about doing podcasts. I just get to meet cool people like you. So yeah, I'm always open to chat chat with someone as long as it doesn't take up too much time. 
<laughs> no, I can, I can respect that. So what is another programming language that you would like to write a book on? Um, I'm pretty curious about Rust right now. Okay. I, see, I see a lot of uh, Python core developers talking about it, how cool it is. Mm -hmm. um, my boss really likes Swift, so that one is a little bit interesting to me too, except that it only basically runs on Mac. So I'm a little bit less interested in that just because you'd only have an audience of Mac users versus, you know, Mac, Linux, and Windows. Right. But I think Rust looks really interesting because it's cross-platform and it's kind of like C, but with a Python syntax and that, that interests me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Heck yeah. I, I have not dug into that too much, but I have a friend who he keeps sending me articles and stuff. He's like, you got to check this out. They're going to start making browsers with it. And, so do you think we'll see Python in a browser or is that just ridiculousness? Um, I, thought, I saw something earlier this year from Mozilla where they were doing some experiments with Python in the browser. I don't remember now what that's called. And you know, like I, I, eight years ago, there was a big talk about putting Python in the browser with uh, uh, that Microsoft technology that they have. What is that called? Oh, it's not took my tongue. They, there's a plugin that they added to. You could run Python in the browser because it was part of the .NET uh, framework at that time okay. uh, through Iron Python. And there's some neat demos at PyCon, and it looked really cool. I was like, sweet, Python's coming to the to the internet. But you know, now nowadays you can you can do Python on online. You can do it with Django and and mm -hmm. uh, Flask, and you can do it um, do it with Jupyter Notebook and Binder. Right. So there, there are venues for doing Python in the browser, at least. It's mm -hmm. just not a, I don't think it's ever going to be as cool as, um, you know, JavaScript. Okay. Although that, that, there is that one neat tool. What is that called? Ansible or no? So there's, a, there's a neat online tool where you can write Python, uh, web, write, write the whole web page in Python. Hmm. I don't remember now what it's called, but I, I keep seeing articles about that. And it's, that looks really cool. So like it generates, it's like a, it's like object oriented, like H tags and stuff. Like some, somehow you would. I'll tip my tongue. I'm trying to think what that guy's name is. It was a name I can't pronounce, but. Um, uh, anyway, he's, he's been at PyCon lately too. And he has a product where you can create websites in pure Python. He's got a neat demo and I think there's a free tier. So you can actually try it out his product. Um, okay. I don't know. I'll send you a link later. Cool. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty awesome. I'm I'm always curious about stuff like that. Um, so I was curious, kind of some more blog type questions here for you. In what ways has blo has blogging enhanced your human experience? <laughs> um, well, it's always a good conversation starter. Uh, you know, you, you tell someone you're a blogger, and either they'll be like really interested, or they'll be like, "What the heck is that?" And, you know, that, that helps with the conversation because now I can talk about what blogging is and why I like it and what I do for fun. So, you know, in the human experience, you get to use it. It's really good for your resume. I think that's how, how the reason I get interviews is I have my blog on my resume and I have some books on my resume. And people want to talk about that, and for that just because that's on there. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you get a lot of – the other thing I like about the blog is I get a lot of emails from, from students, companies, uh, you know, anything from – for middle schoolers to um, NASA engineers, I'll get crazy emails about how do you do this in Python? How do you do that in Python? Can I have a free book? You know, and I'm like, yes, yes, no, you know, whatever. Right. You know. <laughs> 
so you have unlimited topics basically at, at this point in the game there's there's no shortage of suggestions and whatnot not really no that's a pretty awesome situation to be in yeah i i like it that's one of the reasons i like python is it can do pretty much anything in any field and it does it pretty well mm-hmm. good enough anyway yeah i could agree with that uh do you have any advice for someone that's looking to create a python user group i i was looking at uh something that you had wrote, written about that how you started one actually oh like a meetup uh um, yeah i think it was in was it in ohio it's in iowa iowa sorry yeah yep um so uh, the, the Python Software Foundation has a lot better support for this now. You, they have their own mailing list for that basically is kind of a meta user group to help the, help other people figure out how to onboard people. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what I did when I started my group is I was like, I knew I knew a couple people here and a couple people there, and I said, hey, let's get together and talk about Python. And I at that time I worked for the county, so it was easy getting access to a building that would allow us to to meet. Mm-hmm. And then I learned, you know, people like free food. So sometimes you get, so once we figured out we could have sponsors for Piowa, which we did when we moved to Des Moines, mm-hmm. um, that helped a lot because now we have uh, corporate sponsors for mostly recruiters who, you know, will provide pizza or whatever. And that okay. helps bring people in. Um, they also provide places for us to meet. And uh, the Python Software Foundation will also, I believe this is still true, they will um, pay or not sure, I shouldn't say pay, they will reimburse you for like a meetup type website subscription for your group. So if you want to set up, you know, I, I think it's meetup or something like meetup, you set mm-hmm. up the subscription, everyone can join and that fee can just be offloaded to the PSF as, you know, or you can just absorb it yourself. It's not that much, but that's one way to, to help, help figure out who's coming, when, when they're coming, you know, that kind of thing. Cause it, it, it does help to have an idea of how many people are coming for, food purposes if nothing else what what did you uh well first of all do you think that would work in a environment where maybe the the city wasn't as big as the city that you started in like i live in a city with like a hundred thousand people on the weekends it swells to a hundred thousand like would that would that work at all you think yeah i mean when i started out i was in a pretty small area and and I think we, we had the town, we, we bounced between a, a place called Marshalltown and a place called Ames. And Ames is like 25,000 on a good day. So, <laughs> you know, I think, I don't think that's a problem at all. You can, you can usually find at least 10 like-minded people mm-hmm. show up and talk about Python. And it's usually a, a nice carousel of 10, the 10 people. You'll get a core five to 10 people and then another five to 10 random people who just show up once, once a month or once a year. And mm-hmm. depending on the topic, did, and I think, you know, I think, I think if you have it in a bigger city, you're going to get better, uh, better attendance in general, just because you can have that much more to pull. Mm-hmm. But I did like moving our, our location because it did bring in different people from, you know, from Ames is like 30 minutes or 45 minutes from Marshalltown. So you got a different, different group of people, depending on where the location was held. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I'm, uh, did you guys have speakers and stuff or was it, what, what was kind of the format of, uh, of your get down? Um, originally it was pretty ad hoc. We, I would speak or my boss would speak or, you know, who, someone from the audience, kind of a, kind of a lightning talk format. And it really wasn't too hard to get people to commit to say, come and give small presentations. So I eventually, you know, we get a lineup maybe a month in advance and 
uh, we, we usually had someone someone there to talk about something and the, currently the group is run by another guy that I handed it off to and mm -hmm. he does a pretty good job of you know getting new people to come in and talk or he'll talk about a topic in Python and you know most of the time we di we just have a have a, a short presentation that's a half an hour 45 minutes and then you know you can chit chat after or chit chat before or you can just leave um, but you know we've also done some more like workshop type topics like we'll get there and we'll work on something together as a group okay. more programming style excellent yeah thanks for sharing that i'm i uh, i hope that inspires somebody to try it out in their own city so oh, yeah you can you can do it all kinds of different ways yeah that i'm going to i'm going to have to re-listen to this part cuz i think there's a, a lot of good information there uh, what did you, or why did you choose to be, uh, like a blogger over distributing your content on other platforms? Cause there's so many ways you can distribute content. Um, for me, I wanted complete control of my content. Um, okay. I have thought about, uh, about posting some posts to medium, but they, they take control of your content in a, in a, in a, in a fashion. And I don't really like that. I know, okay. I know, I know other people that are very popular in the Python sphere that do post Medium from time to time, or even as their main platform. But I don't like I don't like having some company that I don't know what they're going to do with my data, you know, controlling it in that way. So for me, it's more about I can I can list it however I want, and you know that does bring up the what what do you do when someone steals your content problem? But um, you know, for the most part, I don't worry about it too much. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. What, what is your process for writing a blog? So my process is, I used to be people would email me ideas and I'd be like, this is a really cool idea. Or this is a dumb idea. <laughs> or I already wrote, I already wrote this article and I said, send them a link back. You right. know? Um, but a lot of time I'd be, I take that idea and I'd, I'd make a note of it and put it, create a new blog post and then it would just stay in my drafts for until I got to it. And I probably have a lot. Of, I, I know I have probably a hundred drafts that I need to just look, go through and either delete because the library doesn't exist anymore or I need to rethink it because it's changed so much. But mm -hmm. um, the first thing, the first thing is this library looks cool. Do I want to spend the time learning it so I can write an intelligent post? If I do, I go ahead and write the post. Mm -hmm. um, in other cases, and my, my workflow is, man, I just learned something awesome at work. Now I need to take that information and distill what I learned in a way that doesn't, you know, uh, cause any problems with my NDAs right. and write something so that I don't forget this information for the next time I'm going to need it in the future. And, you know, that, that, used, that drove a lot of content on my blog because I was like, man, this content isn't out there. I had to figure it out on my own and I know I'm probably going to need it again in six months or a year. And it, that's turned out to be true time and time again. Hmm. So that's usually my, 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 my big thing is, well, I need it in the future, write a blog post. Uh, is this something that no one else has written on? That might be worth a blog post and maybe a book, right? Right. You know, keep it, keep it, keep writing it. The other thing that makes me think, is this a book worthy is, do I get a lot of hits on this for a long period of time? You know, like that, that was one thing that brought up the report lab. I had the report lab uh, articles stayed in my top 10 for a long time, like over a year. So I knew that that content was valuable to my readers and might be mm -hmm. worthwhile pursuing as a book. Perfect. That is, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, how, how long did it take for your blog to get traction? Um, that depends on how you define traction, I guess. 
uh, I thought it was awesome when I was getting a couple hundred users a month, okay. um, which is you know how it was probably for the first couple of years. Really, I didn't really mm -hmm. pay attention. I didn't have analytics set up, hooked up, so I don't really know what caused it. But um, I will say, around six or seven years ago, I had changed jobs and I wasn't blog posting to it very much anymore because I was you know learning things on my job. And I happened to glance at the analytics and was like, wow, I haven't posted in probably you know two months, but my my uh, readership is the same or grow has grown anyway. Hmm. And I'm like, that's really encouraging. I'm going to start writing more. And so at that point, I think I was getting, uh, I don't know, 60, 70,000 viewers, uh, readers a month. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, I'm over, uh, I don't know what, I don't know what my official number is. It's like 120,000, 130,000 per that's month. Fantastic. Yeah. And yeah, it's really cool. I, I'm like, this is sweet, and I, I have learned that different different times of the week we will get better hits. So you know, if you post on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, those are probably the key days to post. We get the most hits. Weekends suck. You don't, you don't get any hits. Basically, you know, it's, it's like half what you get during the week. Okay. Thursdays Perfect. can be good if there's a, a big conference like PyCon. Fridays are good, but if there's not a big big conference, Fridays suck too. Okay. So. So the conferences want, help. Is that what I'm hearing? It has in the past. I've had some of my best days on a Friday when it's like PyCon weekend. I okay. don't know why. Yeah. But that, that, that's like the only time Fridays are really good for me. Unless, unless it's like a controversial topic, you know, like post something like I, I hate, you know, PyPy or something. You'll probably get a bunch of hits or whatever, but <laughs> I, I rarely do that because I don't like clickbaity titles myself, yeah. but <laughs> you know, occasionally, you know, when I post stuff like the, the NASA, the NASA image was done with a lot of Python stuff. I think I posted that on a Tuesday, but it, that one it caused a big explosion. I got like six or eight thousand hits that that day, which is huge for me. Yeah, you know, versus well, I usually average like four or five, maybe. Mm -hmm. Damn, um, that's that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, so I know one of your kind of missions going forward is to expand that audience. What is a, a strategy that you're going to be leveraging? Well, this year I I committed to driving up my, my Twitter audience to see if that would help. Okay, perfect. Um, I've only been doing that a couple of months, so I don't have good data yet on whether that's helping me or not. Mm -hmm. It is definitely helping my Twitter following. I don't know if that's a good thing yet. Um, <laughs> I'm really hoping it will be. Um, yeah. I'm going to play with Instagram a little bit and see if that helps at all. Mm -hmm. I, you know, right now the numbers are uh, negligible because I haven't done very much with Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, I was trying to do YouTube last year. Um, it was encouraging. I was getting, I was getting YouTube subscri subscribers, but again, was I getting very much uh, viewership on my blog from YouTube? I don't think so. Oh, they were just staying on the platform type thing. Yeah, I think they were. I don't think they were coming back. Yeah. Or at least the, the numbers are so small they didn't show up unless you know you page to page fifty or something. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I haven't found the magic sauce yet, but. Okay. I'm going to keep plugging away at Twitter and I might play with, with Reddit some more because I, I do know if you play your cards right on Reddit, you can get a huge influx of users. It doesn't usually last very long. Mm -hmm. so it's usually a flash in the pan, two or three day thing. But if I get that flash in the pan and they like the content on there, maybe they'll come back. So right. Yeah, and there's keep, posts going back years, 10, yes. 10 years. 
it's it's actually funny you bring that up because some of my posts from 2012 are like some of my best posts and i'm like what did i do different in 2012 i know i wasn't a better writer then i was a worse writer so why is that why is that getting so many hits versus my new stuff from last year you know huh. yeah <laughs> yeah that's wild and how does so how does that work because I, I know you brought up something uh, along the lines of like you don't like having aged content out there like your python 101 book but i mean when you once you amass 10 plus years of blogs like you're not going to go back and I mean, it just seems like you'll hit a critical mass where it's, it would just become insanity. Yes. Um, interestingly, most of my blog posts work still. Okay. Um, that's, that's one thing I do like about Python is stuff that I wrote for 2.5 mostly works in Python 3 or works completely fine in Python 3 minus the print statements. Right. You know, um, the, the, the only case that that's really failed me badly is some really old WX Python code that has just changed. You know, he's had to, Robin Dunn, the creator of WX Python, has had to deprecate some things when mm-hmm. he switched switched backends. And, you know, some of that code is just, just doesn't work. But it mostly works. It only takes a, cu- a couple of little tweaks here and there. And when people point out that this article doesn't work, I just go back and fix them. Right. You know? Or I say, I, I wrote a new one. Like, uh, I have like, a new PubSub article out for WX Python. And so I've gone back to the two previous versions of PubSub articles I've written and say, if you're using WX Python 2, this is the article for you. If it's 3, go to the next article. And if it's 4, go to this article, you know, whatever. Right. So I am starting to, to fix that problem by saying, go to my next article. Here's a link. Okay. Oh, just something up top saying, like, there's a new version of this. Or, yes. Okay, I see what you're saying. Okay, perfect. That's good advice for anyone that's going hardcore on the, on the blogging, for sure. So yeah, I, oh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, if you have old content, you need to audit it every now and then. <laughs> Make yeah. sure it's okay. And if it's not, you probably need to put a deprecation warning of some sort at the top. Mm. Yeah, good call on that. So I wanted to talk about testing a little bit. Um, what kind of testing advice do you have for someone writing file system deletion scripts? <laughs> well, for me, it's uh, write it out with a... Uh, in a test mode, so you can, it just prints out what it's going to delete, not actually delete anything. Because, you, you know, I usually find out the hard way, especially with deletion scripts, that you're going to end up deleting something you didn't mean to. Much like when you run a rm-rf on something you didn't mean to, it will happily delete everything in your folder. Mm. In my case, I deleted a lot of, uh, a lot of our source code and, because I wasn't testing it properly and it targeted the wrong folder, you, you know, I passed in something like dot slash instead of the actual full path I wanted to test against and deleted. I think it tried to delete itself and couldn't, but <laughs> anyway, that was bad. But fortunately, always have backups when you're playing with those kind of code. Okay. Backup, backups are probably the, the first thing you need to have if you're going to create a deletion, deletion script. Make sure you have good backups before you run it. And if yeah, besides that, learn what TDD is, test-driven development. It will, it will help you. Version control will help you a lot too, because even mm-hmm. with a deletion script, who cares if you delete your current version? You can just roll back really easily, mm-hmm. assuming your version control is actually, you know, in the cloud. Right. Don't delete your your Git revisions uh, on your local system when you're and you're stuck. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's good advice right there. Uh, what what testing advice do you have for a small team of or a small team Python dev shop, like of two or something like that? Or is it all the same? Um, oh, it's, it's pretty similar, but it, when you have a team, you can all work together. And that's, that's the best thing about having a team. 
uh, I recommend pair programming. That helps a lot because you can you can trade who writes the test and who writes the code to pass the test, and then you can switch for the next test in the in there. When you have two brains go, focusing on a problem, you can both come at it from different ideas and discuss which is the best approach. Uh, hmm. When you, uh, the nice thing about TDD is you know when your code is ready to commit because if the tests are passing, you can commit it. Um, if it's a brand new code, you can have a decent confidence that your code is somewhat tested versus trying to test old legacy code, which is really hard to know if you have good coverage or not. There are tools that will help you. Coverage.py will help you, for example. Mm -hmm. But um, even that's not going to tell you 100% you have covered every single edge case you can think of because the user will find something that Coverage.py didn't think of and that you didn't think of either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, ha we have some uh, famous people in our office. They're, they're known as like the people that break things. Yes, <laughs> yep. We have a tester at work who is well known for being able to break anything of ours as well as going to uh, like a cell shop and breaking demo displays. So, okay. And, you know, he, he's good at, good at his job and we're glad to have him, but he's a force to be working with. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Uh, so is it a good thing or a bad thing to see so many internet tutorials that do not use TDD? Um, beginner tutorials, I think, could benefit from TDD, but it might make it really hard for a beginner to understand what's going on. So there's a little bit of give and take. I, what I would like to see is a beginner tutorial written for beginners, and then a TDD version of the same tutorial written for like intermediate. This is, this is how you can improve your code. So here's how you do it without TDD, and here's how you do it with TDD, and maybe mm. make it a two-parter. And that would help a lot of people see, oh, this is why TDD might be valuable and worth learning. But you know, throwing too many acronyms at a beginner, or even a data scientist, because they're not used to using Python, for example, they'd be like, what the heck is this? And they won't read your article because it's too confusing. Mm. I see. So have like maybe a way to toggle the tutorial or, or something along those lines. Yeah, if you could do that, that, that would be the ideal way. I, I'm not sure that there's a platform that actually allows you to toggle blocks like that very well but okay yeah cool concept though did you learn unit testing like trial by fire or was there like some resources that really stood out uh, alas i still don't get to do a lot of unit testing but um we had a tdd course that i've taken that was really good and helped open myself and my team's eyes to how awesome it is mm -hmm. um that is unfortunately something your company would have to pay for probably and you'd have to hire someone to, to do that. Um, for Python, I do know that there is a, t a TDD book. It's mainly focused on web developers, unfortunately. So if, okay. you don't, if you're not a web developer, it might, it might help you. It might not help you. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that is one thing that is kind of short in the, the Python community is another more general TDD book. I think that would be awesome to have another one. But regardless, you can usually go out and find uh, Python katas that you can use okay. to help you help you learn TDD, or at least help you get the idea. Do the kata as a TDD by following how you do a kata. Right. Excellent. Yeah. What What is your message to an organization that claims testing and stage environments are cost prohibitive? Uh, my message would be that. Um, you don't know what you're missing out on, and you're going to lose a lot of money by not having. Uh, at least a test environment and not a stage environment. 
because when you're when you are programming in production, there is a lot you can harm a lot of users all at once with very little effort. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't recommend it. I have worked for organizations that do it. Um, so, you know, don't be too surprised if you end up doing it, but it, it sucks and it will cost you at some point. Mm-hmm. Either way, you're paying. Yes, you're going to pay for to fix it or you're going to pay by finding out that you don't have proper backups or, you know, there's lots of different ways you're going to pay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hopefully it's just in, you're going to be paying your workers to fix it and you're not going to be paying by, you know, losing a lot of your, your income. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Yeah. Thanks for that. So uh, just kind of like winding down the interview here, I was wondering, do you have any additional advice for Python programmers to help them monetize their skills? I get this question a lot on Instagram and I just would love to leverage your experience on this. Uh, monetizing is hard. You have to be really passionate about it and never give up. Uh, it's going to take a long time to, most of the time it's going to take a long time to get it to work. For my for myself, you know, I, I wasn't even trying to monetize my blog until recent, fairly recently. I think like the last five years really, I've, I've tried it in different things. Um, but you can do it. You have to, you have to try everything under the sun to make yourself uh, available. You have to be you have to be available to your readers. You know, you can't just say, "I don't care about you," and not help them, because then you'll get a bad reputation. So you know, you have to be open, but you can't be too open because if you're always helping, you never get to create new content either. Mm. So there's a fine balance there because you will get. I, I've seen some people get overwhelmed with all the people that are saying, "Please help me! Please help me! Please help me!" And you know that you can. That can take away from your from your full time job, not let alone your your hobby that you're trying to turn into a job. Right. So, you know, balance your work and your time and your your fun. But if you're really serious about it, you're gonna have to work hard at it too. Mm, I love it. What is your favorite summer activity to do with your family? I really like going outside and enjoying the fresh air, walking around. Uh, I'm really into photography, so. If I can take photos of my family, that that's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, we recently went to, uh, into northern Minnesota, and I got to take photos of hummingbirds, which is something I've never done before. Okay, and that was that was fun, chal- very challenging because they're okay. very fast. <laughs> so, you know, I, I just enjoy being with my family and doing fun things with them. Yeah, heck yeah, that's awesome. Uh, may I ask, what is the best advice you have ever received? Hmm. The best advice would probably be, and I don't know that I've, I've received it from one person. It's more of something I've learned. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, put your family first because they're the ones who are going to be there for you at the end of the day. And um, put, then put yourself, this, this one's kind of tricky. Do you put yourself first or you put your family first? Mm. I put my family first then I put myself next and then I put my work and then my hobby because the, you know, writing is right now is my hobby. It can't it can't provide for me financially right now, but I hope it will at some point. So you keep those things in in mind. You know, your family matters the most. You definitely take care of yourself, or you're not going to be take care be able to take care of your family. Right. And you also need to take care of your work for now, because that helps pay you and take care of your family. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a tricky balance. Thanks for sharing that. I I uh, I really appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. Mm-hmm. Uh. What is the best non-technical book you have ever read? Ooh, non-technical. 
Um, that thing they call leisure, I think. Some. Yeah, <laughs> don't get a lot of that anymore. Ooh, there's lots of books. I like reading Michael Crichton books, for example. Sweet. Uh, Jurassic Park, I really enjoyed for a long time. They're just relax. It's it's relaxing and scary and fun all at the mm-hmm. same time. Um, I've enjoyed a lot of um, Grisham books. He's he's a lawyer author. Okay. A lot of his books are fun. Good way to to wind down. If you like manga, I like One Punch Man. Okay, that's a that's a fun fun manga. Not to not super gory. He has a dumb has a simple plot for the most part. Good stuff. You know. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I've never heard. What is it? Uh, what was one, that last one? One Punch Man. One Punch Man. Okay, I'm. That's probably going to be the first thing I check out after this. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. It's fun. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Uh, so, what is the best video game ever made? Ooh, I think the one I play, probably played the most when I was into video games was Twisted Metal. Okay. It was a PlayStation game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like battle battle cars, basically. Yes, right? it was a battle car game. Um, I, I got on a ton of hours because it was a co-op game that you could split two players. I think, or, or I think you're doing four players on a screen. Mm. And if you have friends over, that was a blast. That was so much right. fun. Yeah. Heck yeah. Twisted middle. That's, that's, <laughs> that's awesome. It's I, old school. A lot of people yeah. like Goldeneye and I find Goldeneye is a lot of fun too, but yeah, uh, I had a PlayStation. I didn't have a Nintendo 64. So I went with something else. Yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing all that. I had one last question for you, and I was wondering, what are some programming languages that people should check out? Maybe like the top three or something like that. Uh, just from my own looking at jobs, um, mm-hmm. you're going to want to learn JavaScript because it's everywhere. There's no getting around that. Mm. I recommend Python as a general purpose language because you can use it for pretty much anything. You can use it, and it's not just a glue language. It, it can be used for you know GUIs, uh, data science. You can use it. You can use it in embedded programming, even, and it, it's really amazing. Mm-hmm. And then you should probably learn C or C plus plus if you're serious about learning programming, because they, so many other programming languages are based on them. So okay. it, they they're not fun, but you will learn a lot about even Python. Even Python itself is based on C, so you're going to learn right. a lot about the underpinnings of other languages just by reading up on it, even if you never get good at it. Mm. Alrighty. Well, that is, that is certainly a scary beast. I, I wasn't uh, wanting to maybe look into that myself, but I think I rented a C++ book from the library one time and I was like, holy cow, but maybe it's time to revisit it. I don't know. Yeah, it's painful. And I'm, I, I will frankly admit, I'm not very good at it, but it, it does help to learn a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the show here. It's been an honor to chat with you about all things Python um, where can people find more about you? Uh, you can check out my Twitter account uh, at Driscoll's. It's Driscoll with an IS on the end. Or you can just look up mouseversuspython.com. Uh, that'll take you to my blog where you can find out what I've been what I've written about recently. Uh, like last uh, yesterday, I had a PyDev of the Week. It comes out every Monday mm-hmm. uh, where I interview different people in the Python community. And then, of course, I have my, all my books are listed on, on my blog as well. Okay, perfect. And uh, by the end of the show, I'm going to be blowing up your Instagram. So keep an eye out there. There's like a crazy Python following on there. So uh, I'll, okay. I'll be sending some traffic your way. Um, but good. yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the show. 
And I wish you the best of luck with growing your audience or exploding your audience. So uh, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm.